All right, if we would open up your scriptures to 1 John chapter 5, verse 5. If you would read along with me, starting in verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who, who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life, and, who, and whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Let's pray. Dear Father God, I just pray that you're with us, Lord, as we go over this important passage, Lord. Help us to realize, Lord, and see the importance of just not having faith, Lord, in anything, but having faith in you, having faith in your son, having faith in what your son has done in his life, in his ministry, and also on the cross, Lord. Be with us this morning, Lord, as we go over this passage. In your son's name, amen. I hope as I was reading that passage, you noticed some words repeated um, over and over again, one of them being believes or faith. That's a, the same word in, in Greek here. Faith over and over and over again, or belief over or believes over and over and over again. And then that word testimony. Did you hear that word? That word testimony is spoken nine times in this, in this short passage here. And that's because our passage, I believe, is, is primarily about our faith our faith, our belief in the testimony of God. Or another way of saying this in a question form, do you believe or have faith in the testimony of God? Or I believe another way of saying this is, do you believe what the Bible says about Jesus Christ? Do you believe what the Bible says about Jesus Christ? Today's passage really is largely about faith. And that was the same as last week's sermon and passage. First John, and that's because First John 5, verse 1 through 12, I believe, is all connected. It's all one common thought. Didn't Mike do a good job last week explaining faith? I'm blessed to have men on the elder board that know their theology and actually can communicate it well. I would have titled Mike's sermon last week, the author of true faith. I don't know what he titled it, but I would have titled it The Author of True Faith. And that leads to the question, who is the author of your faith? You or God? I mean, most Christians would say faith is my part. Even that question asking, who is the author of your faith, implies, right? And that's because there's passages like John 3.16 that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes, right, has faith in him should not perish but have eternal life, right? The faith in that passage is clearly the responsibility to have faith is put on 
It's individual. You must believe, you must have faith to have eternal life. But then you get to a passage like Acts 13, 48, which says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word um, of the Lord. And as many were appointed to eternal life, believed. As many as appointed to eternal life, believed. And you get to another passage like Romans 10, 9, which says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In other words, again, you must believe, you must have faith to be saved. Then you get to Ephesians 2.8, which says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. In other words, your faith is not from you, it's a gift. So what is it? Who's the author of your faith? If you struggle with this concept, which I I hope you do, (laughs) because it's a mystery in a lot of ways, if you struggle with this concept, let me ask you another question. Who's the author of 1 John? I heard God. Who's the author of 1 John? John. Is it John or God? Let me read what 2 Peter 1.21 says about Scripture. It says this, For no prophecy, which is Scripture, no prophecy, no Scripture, was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. In other words, God is the author of Scripture, but men spoke. Men acted. Men wrote. John wrote 1 John. Be clear on that. John wrote 1 John. Even to the point where John's personality comes out in 1 John. Let me give you an example. John's Greek is very simplistic. You know why? John was uneducated. When you first learn Greek, the first book that you translate in every seminary is 1 John because it's the easiest Greek in all of Scripture. Paul, on the other hand, his Greek, super sophisticated. You know why? He was educated. The style of John's writing, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, Revelation, are very similar writings. You can just see the similarities in all of them. Because John wrote all three, of, or all one, two, three, four, five books. Do the math there. Think about this, even. John had a relationship with the church he's writing to. And, and as you go through 1st John, you see his, his, his personal love for this church. He calls them little children beloved. And I mean, that's not just saying he loved this church, the people that he's writing to. John personally knew these people, and it comes out in his writings as the author. He was a spiritual father to this church. He was a pastor. So who was the author? John or God? Yes. Still that from Pastor Andy. I see him over there. All right, there's a mystery here. Right? But here's a very important question, and I think this is why God came up so fast. Who's the ultimate author of Scripture? In other words, why have we spent so, many, so much time, months, on such a short little writing? It's not because John wrote it. It's because the author of Scripture is God, ultimately, and he gets the credit. So let me go back to the original question. Who's the author of your faith? You or God? 
Well, I want to be clear. There's a mystery here, and I'm not claiming to understand this mystery. John 3.16 clearly says, whoever believes, there's a responsibility on man to believe. Whoever believes in him should not perish and have eternal life. And then you get to Ephesians 2.8, and it says that faith is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. So did man believe, or is faith a gift from God? Yes. <laughs> faith is both a gift from God and the first active sign, man acting, of the new life. But here's an important question, and this is the point that Mike was making last week. Who gets the credit for your faith? God. I mean, that's why Ephesians 2.8 is there. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul is saying here, all the credit, all the glory for your salvation, even your faith, goes to God. Although man is responsible to believe and is called to believe and will pay the penalty for not believing, it's a command, it's not a suggestion. You repent and believe. The, the apostles went out saying that. That's a command. They weren't asking. God is the ultimate author of faith. And that's the point that John starts with in 1 John 5.1. That's why the sermon was preached last week. And that's the foundation, I believe, to this whole entire passage. Look at 1 John 5.1. It says this. Everyone who believes, again, this is the same word as faith. Everyone who has faith. Right? Everyone who believes, 1 John 5, 1, that Jesus is the Christ, has been born of God. Now, the English, the, the grammar is correct there, but, but Greek is such a precise language, and the syntax of this sentence is extremely important. Everyone who believes, the believes there, right? That's a, it's a participle, it's like a verb, is in present tense. Everyone who believes, continues to believe, who who believes in the Son of God, that Jesus is the Christ, right? Everyone who believes. And then it says, has been born of God. The verb there is in the perfect tense, which in Greek, it's a little different than English. In Greek, it's something that has happened in the past that affects the present. So when you put these two tenses together and these words together, John is clearly saying new birth, being born again, everyone that has, has been born causes faith and belief. Causes faith and belief. We have belief, in other words. We have faith because God has given us a renewed heart. He has rebirthed us. And that caused our faith. Today's passage continues this thought and is largely about faith. Right? Last week I would have titled the, the sermon, author, The Author of Your Faith. This week I have three points about faith. And the first one is this. True faith that overcomes the world. True faith that overcomes the world. The second point, the object of that true faith. And the third point, the effect of that true faith. So let me start with the first point here. True faith that overcomes the world. Why true faith? I didn't just say faith that overcomes the world. Why did I say true faith? Well, actually, I stole this from one of my favorite authors of all times. It's Francis Schaeffer, um, who says in his books all the time, true truth. 
true truth. Why does he say true truth? It's because postmoderns, our, our, our culture, has hijacked the word truth. They say truth is relative. Truth can be anything you want it to be. And when Francis Schaeffer is talking about truth, he wanted to be very clear. He's not talking about relative truth. He's talking about true truth. Real truth. Well, I believe postmoderns have also hijacked the word faith, and they say stuff like, in our culture, you hear this, just watch a Disney movie. As long as you believe in something, as long as you have genuine faith in something, it doesn't matter what your faith is in, you're good. That's not biblical faith. That's not true faith. I'm talking about biblical, true, saving faith this morning, so I'm calling it true faith. You know, Pastor Brent saw the, the same thing um, just within the church and how people would talk. He used to call it just the faith, not faith. You know, when did you put your faith? When did you put your, your faith in the faith, you would say, or a faith? The faith. So the first point this morning is true faith overcomes the world. Look at verse 4. Everyone who has been born, born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith, right? Again, this is the foundation, new birth, right? Being born of God proceeds or produces faith, and it's through that faith that we overcome the world. I have a couple questions we should answer as we, we talk about this. The first one is this, what is the world? What is the world? Well, we've talked about this already in 1 John 2.15, which says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We defined the world when we went over this passage as the invisible spiritual system of evil that is under the authority of the evil one. In other words, it's philosophies, teachings, ideas, cultures, attitudes, thoughts, cravings, lusts, desires, activities that are in opposition of the Father of God. Therefore, being in love with the world is the sin of allowing your, your, your appetites, your ambitions, your desires, your conduct to be fashioned by earthly, fleshly, worldly values. So look at 1 John 5, 4. It says this, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Right? Those that are reborn, rebirthed, right? they overcome the world. How? Well, verse 4, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. It's through faith that we overcome the world. So here's my second question. How does faith overcome the desires of the world? How does faith overcome worldliness? Well, it's actually really simple, and sometimes I think we make faith this mystical thing that's kind of like Star Wars and the Force. As long as you concentrate hard enough, you can make spaceships move and stuff, and like... Faith, scripturally, is much more simple than that. Faith is this. We overcome the desires of the world with the hope or faith of a greater desire. We overcome the desires of the world. This is faith. We overcome the desires of this world with a hope of a greater desire. Hebrews 11.6 spells it out very clearly. And without faith, it's impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe, again, faith, must have faith that he exists, that's the first part, that there is a God, and that he rewards those that seek him. In other words, when you're tempted by the seductions of this world, faith says, 
I trust you, God. I trust that you want what's best for your glory and for my joy. I trust that obedience will bring joy in the long run. I mean, that's, that's what Jesus said, or that's what's said about Jesus in Hebrew 12 too. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. In other words, this is our example. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. In other words, for the joy that was set before him, he was obedient. He trusts God. He trusts the Father that there is joy on the other side of the cross. Just a side note, parents, especially parents of teenagers, you need, you need, this is important, you need to be pointing your kids to joy. If you just keep saying, don't sin, or don't do this, or don't get in this relationship, or don't fill in the blank, and you don't say, why not? If you don't tell them, well, there's greater joy on the other side, that's why you shouldn't do this. They're just going to ask why and rebel. True faith, and this is biblical, true faith overcomes the temptation of the world by trusting that God's commands are good, right, and will bring joy. It's faith and trust in God. It's faith and trust in the character of God. A God that is good and loving. And what he commands is best and will lead to joy. That's how faith overcomes the world. It's pretty simple. It's not faith in just anything. It's faith in the goodness, love, and wisdom of God. It's faith in the character of who God is. It's faith in the biblical triune God. Look at verse 5. 1 John 5, verse 5. It says this. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes in something? Is that what it says? Except the one who believes in anything you want to believe in. Except the one who believes in themselves and follows their own hearts. No, true faith is exclusive. It's exclusive. The object of your faith is extremely important. This is what it says, 1 John 5, 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? True saving faith is, is faith in the biblical God. It's faith in the biblical Jesus, that Jesus is the Son of God. Listen, our culture says as long as you have faith in something and your faith is genuine, right? Coexist bumper stickers everywhere, right? Doesn't matter what God, doesn't matter what religion, as long as it's genuine, you're good. The Bible says something completely different. It says true faith is faith in Jesus. And that faith is the faith that overcomes the world. It's not, faith in, it's not just the genuineness of your faith. It's the object of your faith that brings salvation. And that leads to our second point this morning. The object of true faith. Look at verse 6. It says this. This is he... Right? John is going to explain who Jesus is, and you can't see this, but in Greek there's this um, emphatic positioning that's done with the word this. This is he. It could be like, this is he, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. This is he 
who came by water and blood. Ask for some honesty here. How many of you, when you first read this, if you've never studied this, does that sound a little weird? Like, I see shaking heads. No one wants to raise their hand on that one. You don't want to say the Bible sounds weird. Well, I'll be honest. When I first went through 1 John, I was terrified of chapter 5. When I first was like, okay, we're going to study through 1 John. I'm like, man, I'm excited to get chapter 5 so I can understand this. But chapter 5 as a whole, just I don't know what it's saying. And I'm glad I've studied it um, because I think it's extremely important. And the truth is many have struggled with this passage. Right? Many have struggled. There's actually many interpretations of what water and blood is. Okay? Augustine, for example, people I love, Augustine linked the reference to the Gospel of John 19, verse 34, where, where the piercing of Jesus' side produced water and blood. So this is pointing to Jesus' death. Calvin and Luther connected the reference to the Gospel of John 4 and 6 and saw it as a reference to the sacraments. Right? Baptism being water and the Lord's Supper being blood or communion. Others related it to the Old Testament where being purified, that's the water. Water is being purified and the blood is the sacrificial system of the Old Testament pointing to Christ. Some even point to Jesus' birth, water, and death, blood. So what is John talking about with water and blood? Well, I want to remind you as we started in the introduction to this this epistle, that we're hearing one side of the conversation. It's like a phone conversation. Have you ever been in the car with someone talking on the phone? Hopefully not the driver. Um, You're driving and you hear the passenger talking on the phone, and you hear one side of the conversation. For the most part, you can understand what the conversation is, is talking about. But every now and then you come across something that you're like, I don't know what they're talking about. Something doesn't make sense. I believe this is one of those times, right, for all we know, the, the phrase water and blood is referring to something that the church was really familiar with because John was a pastor of this church for a long time. And they were familiar with his teaching. Let me give, just give you an example of what I'm saying here. Say you're in the car and you hear me talking on the phone. Again, I'm not driving. The other person is. And I'm talking on the phone. You only hear my side of the conversation. And I'm like, oh, yeah, in and out was so good yesterday. Most of us know exactly what I'm talking about, and thankfully this is first service. I'll have to use a different example, second service, so you're closer to lunch. Um, but imagine if you were from like the East Coast and you've never heard of In-N-Out before. And I said, In-N-Out was so good yesterday, on one side of the conversation. I mean, can you can imagine all the different thoughts, like, what is he talking about, In-N-Out? Like, what's that? Water and blood probably was referring to something familiar to the church or maybe something that the false teachers, remember John wrote 1 John because of false teachers, false teachers kept referring to, and it's a phrase that they were using, the water and the blood, the water and the blood. So I think it's important to remember why John wrote 1 John. Again, he wrote it because of heretical teaching, and these heretical teaching and teachers split the church. There was a large portion of the church that left and followed the heretical teachers. And we've talked about this. These teachers were some kind of pre-Gnostics, right? Early Gnostic teaching. We see that in 1 John. They believed that the physical universe, this is a very Greek thing, the physical universe was evil, and that the good was spiritual. So they would say, this, this pre-Gnostic teaching, that God's Son, the Son of God, 
could not be physical because the physical world is evil. When you study the Gnostic heresy, you see that later Gnostics developed a teaching, and they said that Jesus, right, Jesus was just a normal person. And at Jesus' baptism, the Christ, right, God's anointing, God's anointing, chosen oneness, non-physical spiritual being came upon Jesus the person at his baptism, then left him sometime just before the death. In other words, the Christ didn't die, Jesus died the person. Okay, with that knowledge, let's read verse 6 because I think it makes sense. This is he who came by water and blood. He who came by water, which I think, and I'm pretty sure is his baptism, and blood is obviously the crucifixion. Look at verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ. That's important. Not just Jesus, not just the Christ, but Jesus Christ. Right? In verse 1, look what it says. Jesus is the Christ. John's making the point that Jesus and the Christ, those are the same thing. Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. John's making the point, in other words, that Jesus Christ, the Christ, wasn't just baptized. He also died on the cross. I think that makes sense of this passage. So let's read verse 6 again with that understanding. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. There are um, for there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. I want you to pay attention to the order in verse 8. The Spirit is first, right? The Spirit has a primary position in verse 8. The Spirit is the one who testifies, and the Spirit is the one who testifies to the water and the blood, and they all agree, right? How? How does the Spirit testify? Well, at least three ways. The Spirit testifies to the truth including the water and the blood, right? Jesus' baptism and death. The Spirit testified to the truth during Jesus' ministry. Remember, at the baptism, the Spirit came down like a dove. That's one way. Secondarily, the Spirit testifies to the truth of Jesus' ministry and death, right? His baptism and ministry and his death in the Scriptures. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament Right? Men inspired by the Holy Spirit to write about Jesus and predict his baptism and death. Third, Spirit confirms the truthfulness of the gospel in, internally to believers. That's what Romans 8.16 tells us. So verse 6 says, the Spirit is the one who testifies. I have a side note here, and I, I don't have time to, to spend a lot of time in this. So if you have questions about this, I would, I would love for you to make an appointment and, and let's talk. But the King James and New King James add an extra line in verse 7. Let me just read what the King James says in verse 7. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. This line is not in any modern translation. Right? It's not in the ESV, which is the translation I like to use, the NASB. It's not in the RSV. It's not the NIV. It's not in the NLT. It's not in the C. HCSB and ABCs and so on. And that's because it's not in the earliest manuscripts. 
In fact, the earliest Greek manuscript that has this line is not to the 15th century. So most likely that line was added later on. Although the statement is completely biblically accurate, I don't believe it was in John's original writings, and therefore it's not inspired scripture. It's an interesting story how it got into the King James. Let me just read this real quick. Uh, Erasmus was a Dutch humanist Christian scholar who was a contemporary of Luther in the 16th century. When he printed his edition of the New or the Greek New Testament, he rightly left out the extra words in 1 John 5, 7. But as he printed his text, he was attacked by people who felt the passage was a valuable proof text for the doctrine of the Trinity. He replied that if um, he could be shown any Greek manuscript which contained the words, he would include them in the next edition. I want to be clear, Erasmus believed in the Trinity too, by the way. He said, if you can just give me one Greek testament... Right? One manuscript that's in Greek that, remember, John wrote in Greek. Okay? Give me one, I'll put it in. This is 15, or the 16th century. This is like 1,400 years after John wrote. Unfortunately, a Greek manuscript not more than some 20 years old was produced in which the words appeared. They had been translated into Greek but from Latin, from a different manuscript. And again, this is the 16th century. Because of this, and because of the promise, Erasmus ended up adding the extra words to his version, um, or to the words in verse 7 to his next edition that was written in 1522 A.D. From Erasmus' Greek New Testament came the Texas Receptus, and from there, that was the Greek manuscript that was mostly used in the New King James. I tell you all that because... I think it's important, right? If you have any questions, this is called textual criticism. If you have any questions about this, I would love to talk to you about it, right? And I've studied textual criticism, and through my studies, it has reaffirmed strongly the trustworthiness of this, that we have what the, uh, what the, the apostles has written. I have two good books for you if you want to read um, about this. There's one book by Norman Geiser called From God to Us, from God to Us, and a book I, I highly recommend called The King James Only Controversy. It's written by James White. If you have questions about that, like I said, please come talk with me. But we got way off track. Let's get back to our text because this is a very interesting passage. Look at verse 7. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. And we talked about the Spirit. But why the water and the blood? Right? Why Jesus' baptism and the cross? And, and again, mostly John wrote this refuting false believers that said the Christ didn't die on the cross. But I want to ask this question. Why are these two events important? I actually want to compare and contrast them a little bit. Compare and contrast the water and the blood, the baptism and the cross, because I think it's interesting. So if you would, turn with me to, to Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. This is an amazing event, Jesus' baptism. Joy-filled event. Look at verse 13 when you get there. Matthew three thirteen. It says this, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Why did Jesus go to, to John to be baptized? That's a very important and interesting question. 
Because it's clear in Matthew 3.11 that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, meaning a sinner repenting from their sins. And Jesus, of course, was sinless. So why would he need to get baptized? John was confused by himself. He's look at verse 14. John would have prevented him, right? He was like, stop, you're sinless. You don't need to repent. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? John is saying, I'm a sinner, you're not. But look what Jesus answers him, because you have to ask this question, why did Jesus get baptized? But in verse 15 says this, but Jesus answered him, let it be so, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus answers is to, to fulfill all righteousness. I have three just quick reasons why Jesus got baptized. First, it was an example to us of obedience. Jesus was 100% obedient. He was our example. And he was even obedient in being baptized. That's the first reason. Second, Jesus came into the world to identify with sinful men. Jesus was tempted. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was a real human, yet obedient. In other words, you can't say, God, you don't understand. But third, and this is most important, and this is why we're here this morning in this passage, Jesus was 100% obedient and therefore 100% righteous. Jesus said, baptize me, John, for it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Why was it important that Jesus live a righteous life? We've talked about this. So that his righteousness could be imputed to us. Right? Given to us. It's the doctrine of double imputation. Look at verse 16, though. Because I just, I love this passage. And this is an amazing day. Just, I want to like, could you picture being here? Because there's a bunch of people that witnessed this. I love doing this. Just kind of putting my thinking, like, what would this have been like? Verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. Okay, I can't imagine what that would be like. I'm assuming bright, right? So bright that you probably couldn't even look. Right? The heavens were opened. I don't even know what that means. But can you imagine being there in the, in, in the sun, right? This is like the desert, and the heavens opening up and just eclipsing the sun because it's so bright. And they saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him. Right? There's the testimony of the Spirit. You know, John may have been witness to this. We don't know for sure, but he very well could have been there for this and saw this. Verse 17, And behold, a voice right, from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Every time God speaks, it's compared to a trumpet blast or the sound of many waters, like a like a um, waterfall, like the Grand or what's it? What's the big one? That's it, Niagara Falls. Right? If you've been at the bottom of Yosemite Falls, massive sound, right? Can you imagine this joy-filled, glorious day, the Trinity in full display, the Son being obedient, the Spirit coming down like a dove, the Father saying, I am well pleased. This Trinity from eternity past, complete harmony, complete love, 
Right? And you see the, the love the father has for the son. This is my beloved son, whom I am well pleased. <clears throat> the first time, first time since Adam, God could say about a, a human within himself, I am well pleased with this one. Think of the Old Testament sacrifices, right? All those lambs, thousands, maybe millions, I don't know. Pure, spotless, without blemish, perfect lambs. And we all know that there's no perfect lamb, right? There's no lamb that's perfect. All these animals, all they did, they didn't take away sins. They all just pointed to Jesus. And God looked down from heaven and said, I am well pleased with him. The true, spotless lamb of God. What a glorious time, right? Here's my question. What happened? You get to the baptism, right? The water. Heaven's open, this bright light, right? The Holy Spirit coming down. The Father trumpet as a voice saying, Beloved, I am well pleased with him. Then you get to Jesus' death, right? The blood. Sky goes dark. Father turns his back. Jesus screams, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is what a commentator says about these two events. It's D.A. Carson, a great theologian. He says this, Only in his death was the perfect relationship between the father and son broken. When Jesus identified himself with sinful man and bore man's sin on the cross, Jesus was forsaken by his father. Instead of the the spirit settling, heavens opening, and the Father blessing, the sky darkened, and the perfect Messiah yelled out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Instead of being called beloved by his Father, the Son bore the full force of the Father's rejection, wrath, and curse. Not because he ever did anything wrong, but only because he bore our displeasure. When Jesus died on the cross, God treated him as if he lived our life. But here's the good news. For those that have true faith, because of Christ, God now treats us as if we lived Jesus' life. He looks down and says, That's my beloved son. That's my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. It's not because of our works, but because of Christ's works, his obedience, and his death on the cross. Therefore, the object of your faith, the doctrines that surround Jesus, the biblical truth and the story, his baptism and death surrounding Jesus are vitally important. And that's why verse 6 says this, this is he who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and blood. True faith, right? true faith has Jesus, the biblical Jesus, as the object of its faith. And this leads to my last point, and we'll be quick here. The effect of true faith. If you would, turn back to 1 John chapter 5, verse 9. 1 John chapter 5, verse 9. 
If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. John's clearly drawing a line here, right? You can follow men, you can follow these false teachers and their testimony of who Jesus and the Christ is, or you can follow God. You follow his testimony for this, and that this, the antecedent to this, is pointing back to what we just talked about. Jesus came by water and blood. For this is the testimony of God. That he has born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has a testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe, God has made him, or does not believe, God has made him a liar. You believe God has made him a liar. Right? In other words, if you claim that Jesus is something different than the biblical Jesus, right? The testimony that the Spirit and the Bible has given us that Jesus was born, right? He was a man, he was God, he was baptized, he was crucified. You make God a liar if you believe something different than that. Why? Second part of verse 10, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. Look at verse 11. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. In other words, the effect of true faith, right, true faith, faith in the biblical Jesus, is eternal life. John Stott, I love this quote, he writes, three important truths are taught in these verses about eternal life. First, it's not a prize which we have earned but an undeserved gift. And we've talked about this. Even our faith is a gift. Can't even take credit for that. Secondly, it's found in Christ. So that in order to get, give us life, God both gave and gives us his son. And thirdly, this gift of life in Christ is a present possession. True, is a, it's further described as eternal, which literally means belonging to the age to come. But since the age to come has broken into the present age, eternal life can be received and enjoyed here and now. So I want to end this sermon actually where we started. First John 5, 4, it says this, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Everyone who has been born of God has overcome the world. How will they're given faith? That's what it says. Our faith. But here's the important part. That faith is not just faith in anything. No, look at verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes, again, that's faith, who has faith that Jesus is the Son of God. It's an exclusive faith. It's faith in the biblical Jesus, in the biblical Jesus only. The Son of God, the Christ, the man, the God-man that said in the Gospel of John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The object of your faith is extremely, vitally important. And this is why John can say in verse 12, whoever has a son, in other words, whoever believes has faith in the son, has a relationship with the son, whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. So where are you this morning? Have you put your faith in the biblical Jesus? 
Do you have true saving faith that Jesus came, lived the perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, and is offering that to you this morning? If you haven't put your faith in Jesus, I exhort you, the Bible commands you to repent from your sins and put your faith in him this morning. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, as we dig in deeply to the truths, Lord, of what your Son has done for us, Lord, as we, we dig in deeply to these doctrines, Lord, I know that's a word that so many just don't like, Lord. It's just biblical truths, Lord. I pray that we're amazed at how good you are, Lord. And I pray that spurs on our faith, Lord, that your goodness, your wisdom, Lord, and your love, that we trust in those things so that we have faith in those things, so that we know when you command us to do things, Lord, that we don't understand, we have faith that they are for your glory and for our joy. And the other end of obedience, no matter how hard that obedience may be, even Jesus is our example, the obedience of dying on a cross, that we have faith there's a joy on the other side of obedience, Lord. Help us to be a church and a people that has faith in that, has faith in you, Lord, that lives for joy in your glory, Lord. And those two things go together. The more you're glorified, the more joy we have. Help us to glorify you, Lord, through our joy. In your son's name, amen.